How many of you have ever been in a situation where you were very thirsty? I mean, really thirsty. Maybe you were taking a hike and you forgot to take water, or maybe you were at a hard day's work and you, for some reason, didn't take your water bottle with you, or maybe you were just at home and the water was off and so you didn't have electricity, or maybe you had a situation similar to mine. I grew up, as many of you know, in Ghana, West Africa, and so in Ghana, the water was not safe to drink out of the tap, not safe at all. It'd give me serious health problems if I drank it. And the water filters that most missionaries used did not work for me. If I drank water that had gone through a water filter, I would still get sick. And so my parents had to boil all their water on a stovetop in order for me to be able to drink it without getting sick. Yes, that's a lot of work because you have to boil the water. You then have to cool the water to room temperature. Then you have to put it in a container to be put in the fridge so that it could be cooled down. That's a lot of steps. And if you've known me for a while, you know that there was a time in Ghana where our tax situation was just crazy, and my parents were paying around 40% of their income for taxes between America and Ghana. And so we were extremely poor, and so we were doing anything we could to try and save a couple pennies so that we could make it to the next time that we were supposed to return to the States and hopefully raise a little bit more support. So my dad got this brilliant idea that we would uh, start a fire out in the backyard in a big old, bu- uh, big old uh, cauldron type thing with a lid on it and that we would boil the um, water with wood and then we would be able to cool it down and then we wouldn't have to pay for LPG because uh, that was an expense that we didn't need because we could just boil the water with wood. How many of you like smoked meat? How many of you like smoked water? It is absolutely disgusting. Just terrible. I would not drink the stuff. I went up to the city stores and I'd buy water from them that was purified that I could drink without getting sick. I'd bring it home, put it in my mom's fridge with a little label on it that said David's water because I refused to drink the stuff. Eventually, we found a way to get the water boiled, and I didn't have to keep using all my spending money to buy my own water stash. But the stuff was nasty. It was just terrible, and I wanted water. And in this passage, Jesus is going to offer living water to the crowd. Jesus is going to offer living water to the crowd. The big idea is Jesus provides living water. The story begins with Jesus in Galilee with his brothers. And his brothers are going to urge Jesus to go with them to the Feast of Tabernacles. And and we have to understand the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time when the nation of Israel would celebrate the harvest and they would all live in little huts that they made out like little tents outside and they would celebrate God's bounty and they would look forward to God providing once again it was right after uh, a time without water and so they would have ceremonies where they would use water in the ceremonies it was a seven day long feast and at the end they would grab water from the pool of Siloam and they would bring it to the temple and they would pour it out 
And so we have to understand all this as we read the text and we understand the full story. It'll make more sense when Jesus proclaims that he is the living water. Going to the feast then in verse 1. First of all, Jesus is in Galilee during the Feast of Tabernacles. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacle was at hand. Before I go any further, I did not read the whole text. I'm not going to, but let me let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we will jump back into right here, okay? Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We pray that as we uh, look at your word this morning, that the intent and the purpose of this passage of scripture would be clear to us and that we would respond as you want us to respond to your word. And in your name we pray. Amen. So, sorry about that. Verse one, though, let's read it again. Uh, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews... Feast of Tabernacle was at hand. So Jesus has left Judea. This happened a number of, you know, a while back. Jesus left Judea, and he went to Galilee, and he's there at the start of the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's there because he doesn't want to get killed by the Jews, because they're still after him, because he healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda. If you remember that, that was in chapter uh, 5, where he, he healed the man at the pool, and then the nation became very angry at him because he was claiming by doing work on the Sabbath to be God. And so they're still upset with him. They're still trying to kill him. So he's not going to go to the feast because he doesn't want to get killed yet. It's not his time yet to be killed. And Jesus' brothers come and encourage Jesus to reveal himself. Verses 3 through 4. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers come to him and say, Jesus, you've got this wrong. The works that you do are truly marvelous. We believe in the works. We, We don't believe that you're actually God, but we believe that you do marvelous works. And if you want to be truly popular... There is no better time, Jesus, than right now. Get up to the population center where all the Jews are coming and present your miracles, and you'll probably get elevated into some sort of office. This is a true opportunity for you, Jesus, to be uh, politically minded and to take this opportunity to, uh, to market yourself. And so his brothers encourage him to go up to the feast and to present himself and to make his self-known clearly to the people. And Jesus responds in verses, in verse 5, and he says, and, and it explains to us that his brothers did not yet believe. It's not that they didn't believe in his ability to do miracles. They did not believe in his identity as the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. They did not believe that he was who he said he was. They believed he could do miracles. As they encouraged him to go and to present himself and to gather support, to become famous. If nothing else, it'll probably put a couple coins in their pockets, right? And Jesus responds in verses 6 through 7, and he explains to them some points. Verses 6 through 7. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, 
but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Jesus says, I can't go up right now because the world hates me. You think that I can just go and present myself, but the world hates me because I have made claims that is something that they don't like. It's not that I'm just healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. If that's all I did without making claims that I was God, that I was the Messiah, that I was the Christ, then they, yeah, they'd love me because I could just go around zapping people with healing. Everybody likes that. But I'm making claims about who my person is. I am the Messiah. And so they hate me. But they don't hate you, so you guys go on ahead. And he says that the world is always ready for them, but it is not always ready for him. And so Jesus pushes back at verse 4 at their encouragement to go, and he tells them, you guys go on ahead. I'm not going up right now. And then in verses 8 through 10, Jesus and his brothers go separately to the feast. Verses 8 and 9, you go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But then after they've gone up, he goes up secretly. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, but not openly, but as it were, in secret. So Jesus goes up, not with the fanfare that his brothers want. He doesn't go blowing trumpets and zapping people with healing as he marches into Jerusalem and have a triumphant, triumphal entry part one. That's what his brothers are encouraging him to do. He says, no, that's not my purpose to go to Jerusalem at this time. I'm not going in that way. So he goes up separately later on. And then in verses 11 through 13, there is various responses to Jesus' absence. Because he's not come up publicly, zapping people with healing and doing miracles all around him, feeding people with bread that came from five loaves and two fish. The people are just responding in various ways to this absence of Jesus and all these miracles that they were expecting to see as they came to the Feast of Tabernacles. Why aren't we seeing what we expected to see? Verses 11 through 13. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So in the little groups as they, you know, got together in their little family groups that's there at this feast, it's a big family thing too, you know. They're talking and, you know, some people are like, oh, he's, he's really bad. And then other people are like, no, he's a really good guy. He's doing great things. But it wasn't, you know, spoken of openly because people were afraid that the Jews might come and whack them if they spoke too openly of it. But there's already this division among the people about who Jesus is. Is he a good man? Is he somebody to be followed, or is he a bad man? And that is the big question of the text. What are we going to do with the claims of Jesus? Is he a good man that we place our faith in and follow wholeheartedly? Or is he a bad man that we reject? That is the big question. And that is what the evangelist John wants you to ask yourself. What have I done with 
the knowledge of who Jesus is. Have I accepted him in saving faith or have I rejected him? That is the question that the evangelist is presenting to us in this text. That is the question that we each must answer of ourselves. Have I accepted Christ's offer of salvation personally or have I continued to reject it? That is the question. That is the reason John recorded this story for us. So at the Feast of Tabernacle then, Jesus goes up, and now we're going to see his interaction with the people as he builds up to his ultimate claim that he is the one who provides living waters to the people. Jesus goes and he initially teaches in the temple in John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. So Jesus enters the temple in verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, so Jesus didn't go up, remember, it's a seven-day feast, about the middle of the feast, so about day three or so, we don't know exactly, Jesus goes up to the feast and taught. And so Jesus is teaching. And then in verse 15, Jesus is questioned. Because he's teaching. How does he get this knowledge that he's teaching? The, the question really is something like, Jesus, where did you go to seminary? What's your degree that you could come and teach us? And the answer that Jesus is going to give them is one that really offends them. Ultimately, he's going to say, uh, my degree is from heaven. My degree is a doctorate of heaven, okay? Um, if you don't like it, take it up with God. That's ultimately where this conversation is going, okay? Verse 15. And the Jews marveled, saying, how did this man know letters, having never studied? He never went to the schools of the rabbis. How can he come and teach? And so then Jesus responds in verses 16 through 19. Jesus' true doctrine is tied to God's will. True doctrine is always tied to God's will. And that's what he's saying here is, my doctrine is true, it is from heaven, and it is directly and without refute tied to God's desire for me. In verses 16 through 19, Jesus answered and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. It came from God. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak of my own authority. If you want to know God's will and you truly are humble and you pursue God's will, you will know that what Jesus is claiming here is true. That's what he's saying. My doctrine is truth. It's from God. And if you actually desire to know God's will, you will know that it is true. He who speaks from himself speaks, seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus claims that no unrighteousness is in him, and that those who are asking him such questions actually are demonstrating that they are unrighteous themselves. And why is it that they are unrighteous? Why is it that Jesus can say that they are unrighteous? Verse 19 did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus says, you guys have the law, but you don't keep 
it. You don't understand its purpose and you don't use it correctly. And not only that, you're now seeking to kill me. And you're seeking to kill me because of the one work that I did on the Sabbath. And because of that, you are doing unrighteousness. You are breaking the law. Not that by keeping the law you are saved, but he's just demonstrating to them they're far distance from understanding and loving God and following God's will. Then in verses 20 through 24, in opposition, in opposition Jesus justifies his actions. So what is their response to his claim that they don't follow the law? Verse 20, then the people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. They say, no, Jesus, you're obviously probably insane. You have a demon. Which one of us is trying to kill you? You've got this all wrong, Jesus. Nobody's trying to kill you. You're pretty much psychotic. We should go find a straitjacket, put you in it, and take you away. That's what they're claiming about Jesus. And Jesus' response then in verses 21 through 24 is, Jesus answered and said, I did one work, and you all marveled. What work is that? He healed the man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, right? He healed the man, which brought up this huge argument between him and the religious leaders, and it led to him claiming that he was the only way to life, and now they're seeking to kill him ever since chapter 5. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. But then he gives an aside. Okay, it's not really Moses. It's actually the fathers. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. Okay, it wasn't really that Moses gave you it. Abraham gave you circumcision. Abraham was the first one, not Moses. But Moses recorded it in the Pentateuch, the five books of the Bible, the first five books. And Moses gave you this law. And part of the law of circumcision is that after the eighth day, a male was to be circumcised. And he says, you guys are so legalistic about the law code. And, and, and this is right. You're supposed to do this, that you will circumcise somebody if it's on the Sabbath because it's on the eighth day. And you're supposed to do that. But how much more important is it to heal somebody completely so that the person can actually go back to work and perform a normal life than to circumcise somebody? Jesus is making an argument saying, this is a far more important thing that I've done that you guys are seeking to kill me for. Your understanding of the law is completely skewed. You don't understand the law. The purpose of the law is to reveal to us our sinfulness so that we openly and willingly, enthusiastically embrace God's free gift of salvation that is offered. The purpose of the law is not to earn you salvation. The purpose of the law is to show you that you need salvation. And they miss it completely. And so Jesus rebukes them in his teaching at the temple. This then brings up the question, well, who is Jesus Christ? And so the crowd is then going to have a conversation going back and forth among themselves. Who is this guy? His teaching is, he says, from heaven. We tell him he's demon-possessed. And he says that we don't understand the law and that his one work is justified because he did something to heal somebody forever and that circumcision on the eighth day is a lesser thing and we should continue doing that because that's what the law says. 
So who is this guy? Verse 25 through 36. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? Aha! Yes, it is. It is the guy that they're seeking to kill. But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. The people see him, and they're like, isn't this the person that a couple months ago the Jewish leaders are trying to kill because he healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda? And then they kind of stop, and they think about it, and they're like, hey, do you think that maybe the religious leaders know that this is actually the Christ? And that's why they're not trying to kill him now that he's come and he's teaching in the temple publicly? And as soon as they ask the question, they just answer it for themselves. Like, no, that's not possible. That couldn't possibly be the, the answer. And that's what they say. However, we know. What do they know? We know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. They say, no, the, the Christ is supposed to come from Bethlehem, and this guy's from Galilee. So it couldn't possibly be the Christ. And not to mention the Christ, when he's supposed to come, he's not supposed to come from somewhere we know. He's supposed to just kind of magically appear. And so this possibly could not be the Christ. So they just come and look, immediately dismiss this idea that this is the Christ. No, this is not the Christ. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so he responds in verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, You both know me. You both know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Whom you do not know, but I know him. For I am from him and he sent me. Jesus points to his real origin. He says, you think that you know me. You think that you know that I am just of human origin and that Mary and Joseph are my mom and dad. You don't get it. What does Jesus claim his origin is? His origin is from God. He claims that his origin is from God. And if his origin is from God, then the means by which the people are approaching him is completely wrong because they have rejected him as the Messiah. They have rejected him as the Christ. They raised the question temporarily and entertained it. Could the, could the religious leaders think that this is actually the Messiah? And then before even contemplating it a little bit more, they just dismiss it completely and they move on. This could possibly not be the Messiah because we know where he's from. And the real Messiah, when he comes, he's just going to magically poof and he's here. And so Jesus rebukes them. Then verses 30 through 31 show a division among the hearers remains. So some of them accept what Jesus says about himself and they believe him. But others continue to reject the identity and the position of who Jesus is. Therefore, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So some people are trying to take him. 
And other people are just kind of like, when the Messiah comes, could he possibly do more miraculous deeds than Jesus has done? I mean, this is the guy that we've seen come into the temple. He's cleared out the temple and told them that they're supposed to straighten up the way they're using the temple. This is the guy that made water into wine. This is the guy that broke five loaves and two fish and gave fifteen to 20,000 people food. This is the guy that healed the man that was lame at the pool of Bethesda for many, many years. Could, could the Messiah, when he actually comes, do anything more? Absolutely not. This has to be the Messiah. And they understand and they accept who Jesus is. That is the correct desired response. That we would acknowledge who Jesus is. Verses 32 through 34, then Jesus responds to an arrest warrant. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. The, the religious leaders of the day hear that some people are beginning to lean towards Jesus' side, and they immediately issue an arrest warrant, and they send the officers of the temple, the temple court guard, to go and arrest Jesus, because how dare he continue to teach these things in the temple? How dare he, during a Jewish feast, continue to teach such blasphemous things as that he is the Messiah? And so they issue an arrest warrant. Verse 33, Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and when I go to him who sent me, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Jesus says, I'm going to be gone pretty soon here, and you're going to be looking for me, and you won't be able to find me because I'm going to go back to the person who sent me, my father. He's talking about going and returning to God in heaven. But they don't get it. And so verse 35 through 36, there's still misunderstanding Jesus' future destination. So you see them talking among themselves, what does Jesus mean by this? Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Where could Jesus possibly go? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks, Greeks and teach among the Greeks? Does he mean to go to the Greeks and live with them so that he's not with us Jews, but he's with the Greeks? Maybe that's what he means. What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot most of the Jews miss Jesus' point completely. Once again, he has claimed in very clear language that he is returning to God the Father in heaven. And when he does that, he will be beyond their grasp. And they think that he's talking about going to some distant land among the Greeks. And so they once again miss Jesus' claim to deity. And they fail to respond in saving faith to who Jesus is. But then this leads to the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this is at the end of the feast, right? Verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. So this is after the days of the festivities. There was either seven or eight days. Seven days are prescribed in the Bible. And then there was an extra eighth day that they added on to the feast. 
um, that wasn't prescribed by Moses. So it's not clear if Jesus is here on the eighth day, that's the greatest day that they added, or if it's on the seventh day, right after the water had been poured out in the temple complex, that Jesus then proclaims these words. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus stands up and he proclaims that through him we receive living waters. Through him we receive the ability to be in constant communion with God. And that when we come to him in saving faith, then he will give us when he leaves the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. This is a completely unique relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit that nobody in the Old Testament or the early part of the New Testament had with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit would indwell believers. It's a very fascinating, very interesting language that Jesus uses to describe this unique relationship that me and you enjoy with the Holy Spirit, isn't it? He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then Jesus explains, uh, John explains what Jesus means by the flowing living waters. What does he mean by the flowing living waters? Verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit. Those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Believer, me and you have a unique relationship with the Holy Spirit. That relationship should empower us and equip us to adequately and effectively serve the brother and sister next to you in your chair. That relationship with the Holy Spirit should allow you to live a life that is holy and righteous and not completely free from sin, but one that is growing in grace and becoming more like Jesus so that there is less sin in your life today than there was five years ago, so that two years from now there is less sin in your life then than there is today. Jesus makes an, an amazing promise to us as believers that we will receive the Spirit and he will equip us not only to serve one another, but also to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to him. Jesus stands up in the middle of the feast when they are praying and asking God to continue to give them water so that their crops will mature and grow once again. And while they're asking God to provide water for their natural needs, Jesus rises up in the middle of the feast. It had to have been a spectacular sight. I mean, there's thousands of people packed in for the Feast of Tabernacles, and they're all praying and worshiping. They probably just sang through Psalms 113 all the way through 118. This is a big ceremony. And the high priest stands up and pours out the pitcher of water, and Jesus stands up like, I'm living water. If you want it, come here and get it. 
And if you get it, there will be springs of living water coming out of you. And that is the Holy Spirit. And what is the response of the people? There is still division. There is still division among the people who hear Jesus proclaim, I am the only way to the Father. I am the only living water that is available. Verses 40 through 44. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. That is the prophet that we looked at in Deuteronomy, right? The prophet that's like Moses. The prophet that is to come, that all Israel is yearning for. This is the prophet. This is the guy we've been looking forward to. Others said, this is the Christ. Once again, that is an accurate statement. This is the Christ. This is the anointed one. This is the one through whom God will fulfill his promises to the nation Israel. This is the one through whom all must come if they are to receive life eternal. Those two statements are accurate and a good response to what Jesus has just proclaimed. But then what is the other response? Verse 41b, but some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? They're still hung up on the origin part. They still think he's from Galilee, not Bethlehem. And they still think that the Christ is just supposed to poof and be there. And so they're caught up on the origin. They don't accept Jesus' testimony that he's from God. And so they're still stuck on where he came from. Does he come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was division among the people because of him. But some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. There remains division among the people. And then finally, the evangelist concludes this section by presenting us with the overabundant uh, results and reaction that the uh, religious leaders of the day approach Jesus with, and that is with complete unbelief. Verses 45 through 52. Then the officers, these are the officers, remember they issued the arrest warrant to go get Jesus, and they sent out the temple uh, officers to go arrest Jesus. That was a couple verses ago. And now the officers are returning back to the religious leaders without Jesus in tow. Okay? Verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? Why have you not brought him? And what is the officer's response? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Nobody's ever talked like this. You guys have got to come see this. This is really cool stuff. Then verse 48. The religious leaders respond to this idea that nobody has ever spoken like this. They say, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? That's what the, uh, sorry, verse 47. Then the Pharisees answer them, are you also deceived? Do you? The officers of the temple, are you deceived as well? Are you like the masses of the Jewish people who, who don't understand? Not like us. We understand perfectly. And then, and then they ask a very derogatory question. Temple officers, have you guys heard of any of us Pharisees, us righteous people, good people like us, have any of us followed after this Jesus that you say nobody teaches like him? 
And, and the implied answer is, no, you haven't, and so you shouldn't either, because it, it, if he was a good man, we would follow him. If he was a good man, we would follow him, and we haven't followed him, so you shouldn't either. It's very, very derogatory, very, very much looking down on them as, you know, the not-so-brilliant officer guards who weren't quite smart enough to be the brilliant Pharisees that they are, right? If we'd believed on him, then it would be okay for you, but we haven't, so what do you think you're doing? And then verse 49, the crowds acknowledge Jesus, but the crowd, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And, and so they uh, demean, they uh, look down upon the crowd because the crowd is acknowledging who Jesus is. And they tell the temple officers, this crowd is accursed. None of us religious leaders have accepted him, and you're just like the crowd, and the crowd is accursed. And then Nicodemus, Nicodemus from chapter 3, pops up. And he attempts to legally defend Jesus. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by the night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and it knows what he is doing? He's pointing to their legal law code that the Pharisees say that they're so good at following. And he's like, doesn't our law allow for a person to, you know, have like a court case where we actually listen to the situation and then make a judgment after we've listened to all the facts? And what is their response? Their response is really hilarious. Nicodemus is mocked, right? Verse 42. They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? <laughs> this is where they got hung up on Jesus. Jesus is from Galilee, so he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And so they, they look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus, that's, that's the most ridiculous thing that you could possibly say. Are you from Galilee as well? Search and look, for no prophet has risen out of Galilee. Nicodemus, the idea that you could uh, assume or even suggest that a prophet, much less the Messiah, could come out of Galilee is just preposterous because we haven't ever seen that happen. So we're not going to listen to a court case on this because it's just absurd. And that is the reaction of the religious leaders. They reject Jesus. And we see some of the crowd receiving Christ. And the question that John is presenting to me and you is, where are we going to align ourselves? Are we going to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I see where I have offended you as a holy God. You are completely holy, completely righteous, without sin, free from any stain of sin. And there is no way that I could approach you even with just one speeding ticket on my entire record. Because that is sin that is unacceptable before you, a holy God. And because of that, you have paid the penalty. You died on the cross for my sin. And I accept that as the only means by which I can approach you. I place my entire faith in you and you alone. Will we respond in saving faith like that? Or will we respond like the Pharisees and say, this is absolutely preposterous. Nicodemus, are you from Galilee as well? Come on. 
those are the two options that are presented to us. Now the question is, what will you and I do with the truth of Jesus? Will we respond in saving faith and say, yes, you are the one who provides living waters and I need you because I am stained by sin? Or will we elevate ourselves and say, I understand the law quite well, thank you very much. I realize that no prophet came out of Galilee. And so we're going to just, uh, without even acknowledging this court case, uh, dismiss it because it's not possibly right. I'm a pretty good person on my own. That is the other option. Either we humble ourselves and come to Jesus and acknowledge ourselves as sinful and accept him, or we elevate ourselves, we puff ourselves up, and we are prideful and say, I am not in need of a savior. I am not in need of forgiveness. The conclusion then, respond in saving faith to Jesus' gift. That is what the evangelist John wants you and I to do. That is why the story is here. He wants us to see the climax build up. The whole question is started in verses 11 through 13, where Jesus is not immediately seen at the feast, and the people are talking, where is this guy? Is he good or is he bad? And then it climaxes in verses 44 through 52 with the whole conversation between the crowd or between the officers and the Pharisees and Nicodemus and the different responses you see. Where do you align yourself? Do you align yourself with the officers, with the crowd and with Nicodemus? Or do you align yourself with the other part of the crowd and the Pharisees? If you haven't acknowledged your own sinfulness, then by very definition, you are still aligned with the Pharisees and you have rejected Christ. And then the other thing that the text points us to is that there is a need for us to live a different type of life. Jesus points to the crowd and he tells them about God's word and the law and he points them to the need to live out the truth. He points them to the law, and he tells them what the purpose of the law is, and he says, you guys don't live it out. You don't understand the purpose of the law. You don't live out the purpose of God's word. God's given us his word so that we would live it out, that we would live a different kind of life. And then the other thing that points us to the need to live a different type of life is the fact that the Spirit is indwelling us. This is a unique promise that is only given to New Testament believers that the Spirit indwells us. And because you come to Christ in saving faith, streams of living water can flow out of you, and that is the Holy Spirit. And it can lead to service. It can lead to a holy life because of your relationship with the Holy Spirit. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the reminders from John's gospel about what you desire us to do. You desire that we come to you in saving faith. We pray that if we have never done that, that we would seek to do that. And that after we've come to you, that we would seek to live a life that is honoring to you and that is seeking to uh, see good works abound in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Let us stand before our last song, <coughs> and it won't be on PowerPoint. Who's on the Lord? 392. Just listen to Linda. Don't listen.